Hello, I am Lawrence Woodruff, and recently I have done a really good job staying on top of changing the water in my classroom fish tank this quarter. And I'm Michael Ralph, and I was recently accepted to join the team for a new peer-reviewed journal. Hi, I'm Shannon Ralph, and I teach high school biology in Dodge City, Kansas. Professional development should not be restricted to the workday. This is our personal yet professional dialogue. So grab a seat, grab a glass, and join us. We will discuss that we might improve. Today, we are drinking the Big Chew Russian Imperial Stout from Dodge City Brewery. I'm excited about this. They're, uh, they're friends of the show, and I happen to know that Larry Cook and company down there have been struggling very well in their creation of their various brew products. I'm happy to say that I have been to Dodge City Brewing, and I have to tell you, it's a neat little place, and they make some really good beer. Looks like motor oil coming out of our growler here. Yeah, it pours like molasses. I'm drinking a Barefoot Riesling, which I am a Riesling drinker, but this is not one that I've had before, so I'm excited to try it. So we're excited to have a guest, and they are in Studio Prime this time, so we're a little crowded. So we're a little crowded here in the studio. Why don't you tell us who the heck is this third voice? This is Shannon Ralph. She is a uh, highly experienced and decorated and accomplished science teacher who has spent, uh, if I understand correctly, the majority of your career uh, in the Dodge City School District. Notably has been awarded the award to be the uh, Kansas State Teacher of the Year. Yeah, Kansas Teacher of the Year in, what was that, 2015? 2015, yes. That was kind of a big deal for a year of your life. Then following all that exposure and experience, you began uh, pursuing a PhD. Is that correct? That's true. I'm about halfway through my PhD program and just getting ready to enter my pilot study. And so all of that has led to, uh, you're actually here at my house and I know you fairly well because you're also my mother. So <laughs> my mom is on the show today, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. So I'm excited to have you here on the show as we had a chance to have several conversations over the course of the early episodes releasing, and we were talking about things that were worth discussing uh, here on tape, you had a priority that was born of your experience during that travel and that, uh, that higher education work. And I think it's going to be the focus uh, here today. So what, why don't you tell us a little bit about your priority, your priority over the course of these last couple of years? Well, my priority has really shifted to paying attention to data and research as to best practice and how that influences learning in the classroom. My, my PhD work is really focused on learning and the anatomy and physiology about how that happens and how we can then use that information in the classroom and be better practitioners. And so my heart has been to, to bring that not only to my classroom, but I also my department. We have a, about 13 science teachers. And so as a team, learning how to implement research and data to make our classrooms better is really what I'm doing. Which should be at the heart of what all teachers are doing. It is our job to help provoke, promote the cognitive development of our students in whatever discipline or domain we are working. And that must be in response to how individuals learn. So as, as we explore how individuals learn, that information needs to inform what our practices in the classroom are. Well, so I think the question is, what does informing actually look like? Because being classroom practitioners 
We have a thousand and one demands on our time every single day, and the reading literature is hard and it's expensive. A lot of it's behind paywalls that we don't have access to to pass through at the secondary level. And Late. all of those barriers build a wall, and it is not the norm in many places that teachers are expected to climb that wall. It's 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 normalized that we do our best and we guess and it's fine. And so too many places are, yeah, it'd be nice to read the literature, which is a different statement than we should read the literature. Uh, but all of that is just prediction. What did what have you seen, and especially during your travels, is that, am I, am I off base? As I traveled and with my personal experiences, I think I can generally say that teachers want to do what's right for kids. I think that's the premise. I also think that the biggest barrier is time. And so, as you mentioned, if teachers have a million things on their plate, then to say, I'm going to find and pay for and read and discuss and then implement research, then that's that's what's going to get last. That's going to be last on the list of things to do because I've got grades due tomorrow. You know, it, it just moves down the priority list. So I think part of our discussion is how do we make it move up on the priority list so it's doable and, and try to get away from professional development that is not helpful for classroom instruction. Because I think perhaps if you talk to um, the level, the administrative level, they might say, but we provide professional development for our teachers. Okay, that's true. That's true. But I think that's different than staying informed on a regular basis on what's happening in the research world. If accessing education research is a high wall and you compare it to the day-to-day -day grind of teacher responsibilities, it also being a low priority, then when someone invests in that research, they need to make sure that the quality of that research is of a high reliability. And I believe that's uh, essentially the question uh, of our primary uh, research article today. Our foundational article, journal article for this segment is what data and analytics can and do say about effective learning. The authors are Jason Lodge and Linda Corin, and this is found in the journal Science of Learning. This was actually released very recently. It was published online in February of this year. One of the things the authors bring up is that with our technology in education now, there is a lot of data out there. And I know from my personal experience, we have many sources of specific pieces of data, actually all the way down to individual students for different measures of what's going on in the classroom. But the authors are asking does the data that we collect actually measure student learning? And so I think you bring up a good point. We want to make sure that what we do is effective for our students in our classrooms. Uh, this article in part deals with the advent of big data practices. Or we can, we, we've come to this point where sharing information and gathering information across large bodies of people has become easier due to changes in technologies. And so 
uh, some of that information we're gathering is a, is classroom information. And so I think the uh, spirit of the article is that we need to temper our excitement for what that big data means. Uh, because if we aren't, if we're just looking at data and we don't know, uh, we don't have a context in which to interpret it, it's uh, similar to uh, the old Matrix movie where you have someone looking at a string of zeros and ones and letters, and it's just a string of zeros and ones with letters. Whereas others who have context can look at that data and then identify relatable patterns. So how, how do we bridge that gap from someone who is every day in the classroom who are the people that want to implement that information? I think that is a, a fundamental and a unique problem associated with education. And I frequently make comparisons between the various professions, uh, a medical student and a law student and an engineering student and a teacher are all looking for being responsive to the current research and evaluating the efficacy of their practice over time. The problem is a law student can evaluate their, uh, their success and failure rates in court, and they can evaluate precedents, and medical students know if their patients are dead. But for education, our problem is it's so hard to measure learning in real, authentic ways. And so we are so hungry for numbers, for something that's, that's clear and something that's actionable, that as this rate of generation accelerates, and we have numbers for everything to arbitrary uh, significant digits, it can be really, really tempting to just say, I finally have a number, any number, and bad data is better than no data, so let's use our human brains to see ghosts and patterns in the numbers. And so it's really hard to have temperance and discipline and restraint and ask yourself, what are the actual meanings and processes behind these numbers? And what are the spurious patterns that pop out of just generating such enormous quantities of data in the first place? And as you mentioned, we don't have a lot of experience in that in that realm because this is a relatively new development in the educational discipline. I think we also need to consider what the authors suggested. And they said, not only do you need to be able to select the right data, but you also need to select the appropriate educational actions. So those are two key pieces. And I would propose that that's very difficult to do by oneself. Like you cannot, or it'd be very difficult to take data sets on your own students and analyze them and then try to figure out for yourself how to respond to that data. So I think part of this is finding people with whom you can collaborate to do those things, to select the appropriate data, to go through it together, to analyze it, to look at big patterns. Because we know that a lot of times patterns emerge for one person that may not emerge for another. I think it's a collaborative effort. It's important that it's a collaborative effort. And it doesn't matter what content you teach. It doesn't matter your area because the, the practice can be modified based on the content you teach. Uh, I think you nailed a point that the authors are also trying to make clear and make important in their, in their article in that the teachers are still at the center of implementation and decision-making in their classroom. And so if we've got these big data patterns from which we're working, that's appropriate. And we should be deciding what kind of generalized framework should we build it, should we be building about our curricular choices from these big data sets 
and what kind of general philosophies can we establish? And then from those big picture patterns, classroom teachers can consider the specific needs of their students and the specific constraints of their classroom and their building to say, here's how that maps onto my situation so that I can decide that these exceptions are appropriate and that responsiveness to this framework is appropriate and not the other way around. If I'm trying to generalize from my work, that's a, there's, a, there's another citation, it's a little bit old, it's from 2005, uh, but uh, I'm gonna try and say his name. Ioannidis, why most published research findings are false, and mentioned that uh, there's a big problem with reproducibility, and one of the biggest problems is when you generalize, generate large data sets, you more often are just reliably reproducing the inherent biases of your research then you are identifying anything new. And the same thing can happen in your classroom if you're going the wrong direction. So teachers are still at the center of analyzing this data and they're making decisions for their classroom, but we've got to be working from the bigger data sets to try and build that initial framework. I don't by any means want to downplay the importance of large data and big data sets and uh, trending patterns that exist outside of our individual classroom, uh, but Big data is only valuable as is the context available to interpret it, which is provided by small data. So experimental lab and classroom experience is the lens from which big data is going to be interpreted by everyone. So starting with the big data, I think is wrong. Mr. Ralph, I disagree. Uh, I think that you have to start from small data to provide the context of interpretation which then strengthens what Shannon said earlier, which is that collaboration is a key component of the interpretation of that big data, because it is through broadening the interpretation from multiple small experiences that we can increase the validity of our pattern identification in the large data. I can't do it accurately, but maybe with her collaborating with me, we can do better. And when we add you to the mix, maybe we can do better. And when we add our department to the mix, maybe we can do better. Uh, I think you ha individuals have to start with small data in order to interpret big data. That is my position. What's small data? What is, what is that? Well, uh, the feedback from what is happening in my classroom and then the research that is done, not in terms of digital analytics, but in terms of we have a treatment, we'd like to apply it to this classroom and this classroom, uh, but not this classroom, and then we'd like to compare some things. So uh, experimental and laboratory data that would then help us interpret what we might get from larger patterns. Uh, that's interesting because I, I will immediately concede that the, the context within which we are trying to solve problems should come first. Uh, so I think the question is whether or not I should be looking at the data within that context first, or should I be looking at the larger, broader data to then set within my smaller context and then look at my own numbers? And the latter, which is what I'm arguing for. And there's actually a, there's a study cited in this foundational article uh, that's an example of how this works, where they looked at confusion and the effect of student confusion on student understanding. And turns out desirable difficulty and struggle improves retention. That doesn't shatter any of the worlds in this room. And that matters for this conversation because I should identify that my students are working in an online space and they're trying to process this problem. And so I need to know whether, how I'm going to respond to initial student struggles. 
I'm not considering how many of them feel like they're struggling, and I'm not considering what my current progress is. I just know I have a question about this particular setting, and then my question should be first base rates. I need to go seek the base rates of student performance before I'm looking at those small data numbers. And the reason for that is because in this confusion study, students didn't self-report experiencing the confusion and difficulties that were present in the objective measures. So if you stick with small data first, you're going to be susceptible to overlooking entire domains of consideration that aren't going to be present if you don't take that larger perspective first. Well, I actually am stuck in the middle because I see validity in both sides of this particular argument. Just to throw a little bit of kink in this discussion, I would also propose that we don't always have control over the data that we receive. So big data, what are you talking about? Are you talking about state assessments? Are you talking about district-wide scores? Are you talking about building scores? What do you mean when you say big data? What do you mean when you say small data? Do you mean a, a formative check? Do you mean a small chapter summative check? Do you mean a unit check? What? Let's define small and big data. It is not controversial to take swipes at state assessment data. The current state science assessments are, I'm told, not all that great. They were terrible in the past. That even district common assessments are developed under such time constraints and with such uh, Spartan resources, and especially time for validation and uh, and things of that nature. And so it's so easy to find fault with any external measurement tool. But it's also so easy to allow bias to creep into something that's developed specifically for your classroom and with limited generalizable application. So. I'm impressed that you know that state assessments now or at any time have been poor since we are never allowed to look at them. So that's an interesting claim to make because I have zero data on whether that is a valid statement. Then uh, since uh, one of the questions posed was learning analytics, uh, what the heck does that actually mean? Or big data, what does that actually mean? This paper defines, and I, it's rather broad, so perhaps my, uh, my initial um, critique was not really in light of this particular answer, uh, which would mean I would have to change my argument. But that is learning analytics involves the integration and analysis of data from multiple mm -hmm. sources to inform action, which means their answer kind of resolves my initial dilemma, which was they're saying you need multiple sources. So you need the state assessments and the classroom feedback, the small classroom feedbacks in order to make any decision. And I think perhaps the... Interesting action comes from the comparison of the two. Uh, if my classroom, I'm experiencing this particular issue compared to uh, some, whether it be well-defined or poorly defined standard, it is the discrepancy between them that I need to address. Uh, we've got a good story about that because early on in our collegial relationship, we had an opportunity to use uh, an early draft of a state of a district developed assessment and we sat down with the item analysis and we said, okay, question one, what's your number? What's my number? They're similar. Moving on. Question seven, your number is higher than my number. Why? 
And so the answer sometimes was, that's a garbage question. We don't care. Moving on. And the answer other times was, you did something meaningfully different from what I did. I'm going to consider new things next year. And I think that question of why was the important piece, because sometimes the why is not going to be actionable. That assessment's got to get better. And sometimes the answer is going to be actionable. But I think being willing to be responsive to the analysis opportunity is the actual should that comes out of this paper. And so now I'm going to change my position again. Those state assessments were garbage because I could never do item analysis with my students to experience what I should be doing to improve what I am doing or what my department is doing in my classroom. I can't know if I don't have access or opportunity to analyze that data personally. Sometimes in bigger schools, when they have assessments that are common between teachers who teach the same thing, they have to be provided time for that item by item analysis and do exactly what you just described. Well, I go through and say, your score is different than mine. What did you do? And you, it, it makes your classroom practice better. Again, that time has to be provided. Time is our enemy in a lot of these instances. And I think the point of the article is you have to look at data. You have to look at data of some kind to improve classroom instruction. It was interesting because I had a, after I read this article, I had a conversation with one of my colleagues who doesn't teach the same content I do. We were, we were at lunch and I was telling her about this article. And so we began a pretty healthy discussion about, well, wait a minute, what data do we have? What data do we use? What do we not use? What's available? And it was really eye-opening because she made the statement, which is what I think is, is accurate for so many teachers that they don't look at data unless they, and I quote, need a reason to look, right? Until they're forced, so to speak, to look at the data, they don't. And so this idea of my kids are doing okay, I'm going to close my classroom door and move on, those days have to go. And I think that's the point of this article is you got to start somewhere and go and then get better from there. The should is it takes time, so administrators have to have the fortitude, the determination, the foresight to identify that responsiveness to data is a priority and we're going to allocate time to it. And not only that, they have to be careful about the incentive structure they create because there's a lot of crap data analysis going on in the world, in education and elsewhere. So it needs to be about expectations of thoughtful, mindful consideration of the research and not incentivizing just pumping out conclusions. So were you doing thoughtful, appropriate data analysis? And if it didn't lead to an actionable, so be it. it let's talk about the quality of your consideration. And that's going to mean providing time and a time maybe without a deliverable other than just talk about your process. Just discuss research, not use research, not change classrooms. Just discuss it. Just think about it so we can have improvement over time. And that's a problem that's going on in the larger context. And that's mentioned in this article, in the openings, said this is a symptom of larger problems in social science in general. Many teachers do not know how to do that. Practitioners, quite honestly, are great at teaching their third graders or their fourth graders or whatever content they teach. But to say to them, you now need to look at the research or look at the data and thoughtfully 
filter through it and learn from it to become better practitioner is not intuitive. There is a process. And so along with administrators allocating time for that analysis, there also needs to be some training on what does that even look like and get the experts in to say, here is a data set. Let's talk about how to look at these numbers and make sense and meaning from them. Now we do other stuff. In our second segment, we're turning our attention to a content area. And despite the title, this, our content area is actually focused on special education and unique needs of individual learners. Uh, so the article is, if science teachers are positively inclined towards inclusive education, why is it so difficult? And that's by uh, Spectre Levy and Yifrak which I believe is how you say that. This is the segment of the show where we're really excited about research and butcher the names of the researchers. Uh, our focus on maintaining diversity in our publishers means that we are frequently desirably challenged <laughs> by reading their names. Yes, yes indeed. The study is important because it highlights the fact that you're gonna be hard pressed to find any teacher who says, I don't care about serving all of my students. You're, nobody's gonna say that. So if everybody is generally agreeable to serving all of our students, why is it so hard to serve all of our students? When I read this article, I walked away with, it's the first of a larger study. And this study wanted to look at how teachers, in this particular study, it's science teachers in middle school, how their attitude towards teaching students with learning disabilities affected their willingness to employ strategies to more effectively teach those students. So this piece of the study really was looking at, at attitude and it was a mix of both quantitative and qualitative study. So they took some quantitative data, but they did some questionnaires of the teachers to support some of their conclusions. The entire study was uh, contextualized with a framework uh, called uh, uh, the theory of planned behavior. And essentially, if I may boil it down, is that an individual's attitude toward something their perceived agency and the perceived social value of that thing will influence their actions toward that thing. And so the questionnaire that was developed and the interviews that were conducted were all about the teacher's perceived agency to meet the needs of, of students with learning disabilities, their attitude toward meeting the needs of students with learning disabilities, and the social value of others of meeting the needs of students with learning disabilities. A general conception of learning disabilities is what are we going to do to deal with each one of these individual students and their problems so they can be like normals. Yes. And that stands in direct opposition to the social model of disability, which is everybody has weird and interesting and unique stuff about them. So how do I build a classroom that's responsive to the individualized needs of everybody, of gender and culture 
and learning inclinations and learning disabilities because they are all just the eccentricities of teaching humans. And so I want to be responsive to everybody and learning disabilities fits into that general lens of a responsive environment to all sorts of things. Because I think that that shift in perception is important when we get to the flavor of considering how perceptions shape classroom interventions. Because I liked that. I was I, like, yeah. I, that gives some form to some general things that I have felt for a while. So if, gosh, we, we're, you've got this group of kids, and gosh, we hope you do good, so go forth and conquer. And if you do, great. And if you don't, eh, you did the best you could. I think that's part of this paper is you must feel supported and from that, you feel more effective. And from feeling more effective, you are more effective. I, I felt like that was the point. I think support and incentive really go closely hand in hand. I think that that's think. a comparison that gets overlooked sometimes of, we're really happy that you're staying after and promoting some extracurricular projects just out of student interest. That's great. Um, but also, you needed to be in this meeting. And so we're glad you're doing that. But you're also in trouble because you didn't go to this ticky-tacky meeting. Okay, so you like us to do that, but you're not incentivizing me to do that. You're making it. You're making my life worse because I'm making that choice, which means I'm not supported. Mm -hmm. Well, when you make that choice, you are making that choice, and I am making a difference for those kids. It is yay, good for you. As as the person walks away, not acknowledging or recognizing you are doing these things. Let's talk about them. Let's offer them to other teachers. Let's grow this thing you're doing that's yeah. working. That's not true. Teacher attitudes and intentions were uh, high or highly respectful about needing, meeting the needs mm -hmm. of students with learning disabilities. Um, but perceived agency and perceived social value for doing so was very low. Oh, yeah. The norms was the worst category. They call I want to talk they about that. That's what I care about. Social and, norms. Yeah, like, what they called, but that, they said they have no. There was no significant, no significant. Of those so four, there was there was there was a couple of different things that they were. They were like the straight one. There was like these are the straight, straight things, and then they did how do these affect each other? They did, uh, and and that is where there was there was I think what you were talking the, about like subjective norms. Yes, subjective so, norms yeah. had no impact. On anything else. That's right. basically what they said. Yeah, that's what they said. I want to know more about that. Will you give me three sentences? That, that's really all they said. They When they ran the ANOVA, they found the correlation between, on that model that they presented in this paper, they found correlation between the other three parts of the model, the attitude, behavioral control, and intention. Yeah. However, there was no statistical correlation between subjective norms on any of the other three. It subjective norms is I think what you think it is is that how do the others in my environment value my investment in doing this? So the results of this study is that right? A result support perceived, right? Or training perceived for I took it more as the on, on an administrative level. Like, what am I getting? What are the norms that my district is expecting of me to teach these kids? I, I think that you're right. I think that support plays into that in the sense that if I'm not receiving support for this, it must not be important. Right. And, right. and so I believe the subjective norms is about the, the value that others place on it, which 
if they're not providing support, they must not care. Agreed. I think is is, I is the attitude that individuals had. And so that means that one of the findings of this study was that how well supported I do or don't feel does not correlate with how much control I feel like I have over it, how I feel how important I think it is, and how much I intend to act on these needs. That's what So who gives a crap about how well supported I am? I took... uh, what I mean our intention to do it is high, regardless of whether we're supported or not. Yeah. So not behavior. So I might intend to do it, independent of whether or not everybody else, the, my my support structure thinks it's important. But that does not mean whether I do it might be impacted by how supported I feel. But we don't know in this research. That is not a picture I painted when I read this paper. That is how I. That's how I read the results. Which is how I also. Read I it. believe you. I read this the least of the three of us. Uh, but what was interesting is that the other three are highly influenced by each other. Like there was a high degree of correlation between the attitudes, the perceived control, and the intention. The teacher responses were compared to uh, some interview responses given by the National Supervisor of Science Learning. And all this was happening in Israel. So that's a ministry position in uh, Israeli bureaucracy. And so the important thing to consider when we look at perceptions of teachers on the ground is how well does that match the perceptions and beliefs of the administration that's supporting those teachers on the ground? Because if teachers on the ground are saying, we don't have any support and the, per the people who are managing those teachers are saying we're supporting them as best we can then there's a disconnect that has to get resolved and her interview responses were not what i would have expected from somebody in this position because the teachers on the ground are saying we really want to help these ld students but we don't feel like we have the support and the national supervisor in her interview responses was generally saying we're providing general support to these ld students but we are not and are not interested in providing content-specific support to target the individual needs of these LD students. Well, I don't know if we are not interested in was really how to characterize a response. Uh, it seemed like we have not made plans to, which is slightly different. When but if we're taking a behaviorist approach, then we can infer intentions and beliefs from behaviors. Ultimately, I'm going to have to concede because the responses that she did give consistently seemed to put the problem with the boots on the ground. The teachers should collaborate with the uh, the special education department in order, the science teachers should collaborate with the special education department in order to figure out a solution. And each teacher needs to find out what works for them in their classroom. And there was a lot of reflection of the solution back down to the teacher level. So though my initial response was to uh, try to create an apology uh, I don't think now, upon reflection, that I can actually do that. What the supervisor of science teaching said was that she supported inclusion of students with special needs in all subject areas. That's what she said. But she also said their procedure was to pull students out and give them training or support in general skills and then stick them back into that content room. And their theory is that if I can make you a better reader, you should then be able to do better in your science classroom. While still being beholden to all of the experiences and assignments that they yes. missed while they were gone. Yes, yes. On top of which, 
How does that help the classroom teacher? The point of this yeah. article is oh, yeah. I've got a classroom teacher who wants to be inclusive of her students. And yet I have these students with special needs for whom I was not trained to teach. I want to teach them. They are crying, help me, help me, with an administration that says, well, you know, just do the best you can. I think that's the point of this article. Their attitudes are good, their willingness are good, but there's a disconnect, and I think the minister supported that. I mean, her, her, her actual quotes did not talk in any way about training those classroom teachers to be more effective for all students, to include all students. So there's the disconnect. And I think that's where this, where this study was going. This article talked about how teachers feel obligated to include students with learning disabilities. They want to, they have positive intentions to do that. And yet they're receiving these mixed messages that I highlighted that because I think that happens more than it does not. I just want to know that that obligation is intrinsic, yes, not, a, not, right, not, a, right. not a, not a, not a, not a, imposed upon them right correct. but but an intrinsic obligation that they want that to happen correct i got it so it'll be good to see second half of this paper yeah like it'll be good to see the rest of this research so i assume you're coming on to the show again here in uh whatever oh, whenever when whenever would that be fun that'd be great we should definitely just slate that now when this of course, that means you you are on the burden of looking out for this this research. That's your responsibility. Okay. But when you find it, let us know because I would love to revisit it. That would be fun. That would be real. That'd be fun. great fun. Look forward to it. We can have you back before then too. Okay. And now for something completely different. After a brief hiatus, the triumphant return of the non sequitur segment. Uh, you get to experience that today. Our nonsense mini debate this episode. Would you rather teach a, teach a class of 1,000 students with commensurate resources, so including pairs, aids, class and lab space, etc., or teach 12 students with nothing? You alone in an empty room with no support. The actual question at consideration here is how far removed am I willing to be from the students affected by my choices? Because if I have 12 students with nothing, I have direct control, and so I can be responsive, and I can be um, modifying my choices really, really responsive to their moment-to-moment -moment decisions and input and feedback. And uh, so there's a lot of room for error if I have 12 students with nothing. Whereas with a 1,000 students... I have to be really, I have to have a lot of foresight and I have to have a lot of planning and I have to have, I have to be really efficient with my choices. But if I have all of the resources I need, then I can have 1,000 students with 250 undergraduate TAs, with 50 graduate TAs, with 10 postdocs all reporting back to me. And so if I have the foresight to predict the needs of those students, and to predict the resources that can promote their development, and I can derive the data and the measurements necessary, so I can analyze the big data coming in moment to moment, and we have the communication technology necessary to synthesize from really big data sets, then I can provide a really high quality experience 
for all 1,000 of those students, which is in high demand right now, especially at the post-secondary level. We've got our highest enrollment courses in need of improved student service and improved intervention for student needs and students in distress. Well, I'm glad you chose that side because I would much rather teach 12 students with nothing, and here's why. I do not disagree with any of your arguments. I 100% agree with everything you just said, but I think that teaching doesn't happen unless you have relationships with your students. I do not believe you can develop meaningful, deep relationships with a thousand students within a school session. And I think you can easily do that with 12 students. So I know that I could take those 12 students with nothing but because I would develop relationships, I would know about them. I would know how, what, what makes them tick, what drives them, what motivates them. I could then link my lessons and build my lessons around those. With 12 students, it'd be very easy to, to drive my lessons from their personal needs, their personal identification of what's important to them. And we all know as teachers that students learn better when it is relevant to them, it gives them hooks, it gives them meaningful information from which they can draw and, and, and expand their experiences. I don't need fancy TAs. I don't need fancy aides or graduate students to do that. I need myself and my students. We can leave our room and walk around a yard and learn from that if I know what makes my students tick. So give me the 12. I can help them learn. Shannon, you made a point in your initial argument that I think we need to highlight, we need to consider further, because you said that it would be easy to be responsive to student needs uh, if you had only 12 and you fully understood those needs. But we got to consider that a little more deeply, because if you encounter that students need a greater breadth of experience, they need to engage in more robust and complex and intricate practice, but you don't have the resources available to provide them that experience, then you're unable to provide what they need. Knowing is not the same as having the resources to provide and respond. I would question that I cannot provide as great an impact with my 12 students as you can with your 1,000 students. And I don't think that's necessarily true. Because my question is, if you have a thousand students, but you are not personally interacting with those thousand students, you are relying on data and observations of other people for what those students need. Whereas if I have my 12 students, I know exactly what my students need. So I've proposed to you that my effectiveness is higher. So therefore, you said you could solve society's problems if you do a thousand students at a time. But the truth is we don't know what my 12 students are going to do. What if my students, because of their, their learning has been so intrinsic that they then go out and are able to, to creatively affect jobs or industries because they are so strongly internalized with what they learn. One thing, Mr. Ralph, you said is that we can't afford a ratio of 12 to 1. I think that is a fallacy. I think that we do not prioritize a ratio of 12 to 1. But that we couldn't achieve it is not true. I didn't like any of that. How was the beer? Uh, it is very stout. It's it. 
pours like motor oil. It is dark as night. Um, but it's it's mm-hmm. easier to drink than most stouts that I've had. Uh, that's something, uh, yeah, that's considerable because I think that when I poured this, all four times that I poured this, there was basically no head on any of these. And and so there's, it seems like there's a decreased amount of car- carbonation, which means it's probably not as acidic, so it's got a smoother, it's just smoother. But it's definitely heavily malty. Mm-hmm. It's got that bitter aftertaste. This is stout. It's pretty, um... Uh, it's it's a pretty definitive classic example of uh, a quality stout. Yeah. How did you find your wine? My wine, I would be the first to tell you that I am not a connoisseur of wines, so I can't speak very intelligently. But it was really good. I drink a lot of Riesling. It was light, so it was easy to drink. And I can see myself very easily of an evening sitting down with some cheese and crackers and enjoying this again. And thanks for listening. Remember to jump onto SoundCloud and give us your feedback. What did we miss and what should we consider more? Uh, We see you listening out there in Mountain View, California. We'd sure love to hear from you. Uh, Otherwise, remember to discuss research, struggle well, and know your kids.